my fears for this year is that in light of all that we have been privileged to experience through this year, that um, we might get harder instead of softer. I look around this room tonight, and I know that we've had over a thousand people in our church that have seen the passion, but apparently it hasn't affected them enough to make them change their worship habits. We've had 1,400 people go through the purpose-driven life, but apparently they've missed the point. When you hear a song like Praise You for the Cross, it ought to do something to you. When you see a movie like The Passion, it ought to make you look in the mirror and change the way you act. Look at your whole life, your whole schedule, what you're doing while you're doing it. And one of my fears, quite honestly, and that the great opportunities that God is giving us, I'm not a prophet and I'm not predicting that anything's going to happen, but one of my fears is in the great opportunities that God is giving us, so that at the same time it could be one of our last opportunities before he sends judgment on churches and on a nation that can hear so much, see so much, experience so much, and then just go about like nothing's happened. That we could in some way say, well, that's good, but I'm still going to live life on my terms. I'm still going to do it my way. You see, the absence of the fire of God creates an opportunity for false fire. And when there's false fire, there's deception and deceit. The absence of a true work of God allows the enemy an opportunity to come in and distort and confuse and divide the body. And so the thing we should always long for is a true work of God. And a true work of God changes us, not just for a moment, not just the 15 minutes after we see a film about what Christ did for us, but we walk out of there thinking, I cannot be like I was. I've been reminded of something. I've been jolted back into reality of what's really important. And I fear that we have become in the Christian culture so overdosed with opportunities that we're so heavily medicated with opportunities that we're not waking up to what God's really trying to do in our midst and what he's trying to say to us. Which has nothing to do with my sermon tonight. It's just what I was thinking while Stephanie and the choir were doing that song. I'm also concerned, as I mentioned this morning, about the lack of discernment among God's people. It tells me a couple of things. First of all, it tells me of the power of personality. Corinth had the problem. 
I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Paul. And then there was that crowd of, oh, I'm of Jesus. They got attached to personalities. They followed personalities. And if you'll allow me to paraphrase what Paul says is at one point, Paul, you remember when Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ? You know what he's saying, don't you? Paul was saying, you follow me, but if you see me not following Christ, you keep going. And you follow Christ. If you see me messing up, if you see me blowing it, don't you follow me and say, well, that's my excuse for not doing what I'm supposed to do because Paul didn't do what he was supposed to do. No, you keep going and you follow Christ. Why? Because people are always going to let you down. Preachers are going to let you down. Personalities are going to let you down. The, the people that you put on pedestals, listen, the only thing that belongs on pedestals are flowers and the bust of dead men. We don't belong on pedestals. Preachers, leaders, we're not gurus. We're just plain old peanut butter jars. The treasure is in earthen vessels. And so I, I'm concerned about the power of personalities, but I'm also concerned about a, an ignorance in the Christian community of sound biblical study skills. Knowing how to look at the word precept upon precept, line upon line, and seeing what God says in his word. Not being able to distinguish between sound theology and questionable theology. Somewhere in us, warning lights ought to go off at times. When we hear something, and it may sound good, but as we check with the word and as we ask the Holy Spirit, does it bear witness with the word and with the spirit, or did it just sound good? I hope you're in Acts chapter 19, but I want to read Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, and I just want to read it because I'm going to read it out of the message. Eugene Peterson has written a great paraphrase. The message is not a translation, a literal translation like New American Standard or some other. There are two ways that you write translations. One is for readability, and the other is for literal uh, trying to stay as literally true to the text as you can, which is why sometimes New American Standard doesn't read as easy as, say, an NIV does. They're written for two different kinds of study. But Peterson has done a great job with the message paraphrase. It may be one of the finest ones. I, I think it's better than uh, Philip's paraphrase. Uh, and he's got some areas where he's a little quirky on it, but, uh, you know, it's a paraphrase. And so I, I want to read it out of there because I like the way he words this. But there were also lying prophets among the people then, just as there will be lying religious teachers among you. They'll smuggle in destructive divisions, pitting you against each other, biting the hand of the one who gave them a chance to have their lives back. They've put themselves on a fast downhill slide to destruction. But not before they recruit a crowd of mixed-up followers who can't tell right from wrong. They give the way of truth a bad name. They're only out for themselves. They'll say anything, anything that sounds good to exploit you. They won't, of course, get by with it. They're coming to a bad end. For God has never just stood by and let these kind of things go on. God is warning us through the book of Acts about the things that can happen to try to undermine and destroy the church. 
He's also teaching us about the purpose of the church and what happens when the Holy Spirit is in charge of a church and how the Holy Spirit in charge of people brings a great outpouring of God's blessing, of conviction, of repentance, and of a harvest. And he says in verse 13 of Acts 19, but also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now that's a very important line, and we're going to come to it in just a minute. I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, the Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus. I know about Paul, but who in the world are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them. Now, this is one man against seven. Leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now, boy, if God would just do that again today. Because every time somebody tries to do something in the name of Jesus, not in the name of Jesus, the evil spirit just whoop up on them and they run out. You see, and then you see a naked man running through all of them. You say, oh, there he is. That's, that's the guy that's trying to use Jesus right there. Wouldn't that be funny? That'd probably make the squawk box. You see, these Jewish exorcists knew something was good. They, they saw it, but they saw it as a way to make a buck. It was a way to gain some power. It was an opportunity to use religion. And if their scheme had worked, they would have discredited the church and the name of Christ. And so, what well, we have, Acts chapter 5, if you remember Acts chapter 5, the people were bringing their sick to the street, and Peter's shadow was falling on them, and they were being healed. Acts chapter 19, if you back up in, in Acts chapter 19, so their handkerchiefs and their aprons were even carried from his body to the sick. Remember, we talked about that the last time. And the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Now, God manifested certain powers through certain people. And these Jewish exorcists, had an idea, oh, we can do that and make money. By the way, their kindred are still with us. They hold big crusades in cities and promise to heal and deliver. And yet, interview after interview, investigation after investigation, People who have been on platforms and walked across platforms and said they were healed later discovered that they're dead within three months and six months. And I want to tell you that the Jewish exorcist mentality is still with us. And I don't even have to name names. It's still here. Make a buck off of Jesus. Manipulate innocent people. Say whatever people want to hear so that you can get in their wallet. They're still with us. Now the sign, I want you to hold your place in Acts 19. The sign of a true prophet is 100% accuracy. Deuteronomy chapter 13. Acts 19, Deuteronomy 13. The sign of a true prophet. This is the test that God gave his people to discern whether somebody was speaking from God or not whether somebody was accurate. 
used of God, empowered by God. Deuteronomy chapter 13 and verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Let's go after other gods. Now, you see, you can go after other gods and use the name of Jesus. You can go after other gods and talk about the Holy Spirit. People do it all the time. And there's a deception that goes on in the name of religion and in the name of Christianity. And Satan is a master imitator. Let me just give you a couple of quick examples. One ministry that you can find today offers miracle anointing oil. Anointed by the Holy Spirit with the power to bless, heal, deliver, and set you free from satanic oppression for your best gift possible. Another offers a miracle medal. If you wear this medal, you'll be blessed. Sounds a lot like witchcraft. There are paper prayer rugs that you can get. That's what the Muslims do. They kneel on a rug, and they pray in a certain direction, and Allah is supposed to listen to them. There are ministries that have, and I have the paper prayer rug in my files. I like to get these kind of things just to make them waste 37 cents on postage, quite honestly. And I've got one, and you get in this circle, and you pray on it. Then you fold it up, and you mail it back to the ministry with a love gift, and your prayers will be answered. Now, the last time I checked... I didn't have to mail a love gift to a preacher for God to hear my prayers. That's not what my Bible says. If yours does, it's got some apocryphal book in it that we need to talk to you about. There's another one. There's one that has a white piece of cloth shaped like a cloud. And just as God led the children of Israel by a cloud, God will lead you into miracles if you'll send your offering back with the cloud. That's kind of like your money just flying away. (laughs) Miracle coins. You can get a miracle coin that will bless you financially. And if you really want a blessing, you wrap that coin around the largest bill you can find and send it to this ministry and God will bless you more. A covenant book that will be buried in the land of Israel among the people of the covenant And the more you invest in this ministry, the higher your name will be on the list of blessing. Now, folks, that's called a con artist. Anybody with any reasoning ability knows that that's a con. I mean, you might as well go throw your money in Las Vegas and see if you can win at the slots if you're going to try to do that because it's going to, you're going to have about as much luck as you do with them because God's not going to bless them and that because that's not of God. Anybody that tells you, I'll pray for you if you send me money, I'll get, God will answer you if you send me money, they are not speaking 
for God. The grace of God is free. God answers prayer because he longs to answer prayer, not because we pay off somebody for him to answer prayer. Now, two things. Any teaching that demands that God work or holds God hostage is a dangerous teaching. Any teaching that demands that God work or holds God hostage to some method is, is leaving the door open to demonic imitations. Remember what Paul said in Philippians? Their God is their belly and their glory is in their shame. And he said, I say to you, many walk, not a few, but many walk this way. Their God is their belly, their appetite, and their glory is in their shame. We have that among us today. Now, I want you to go back and look at this phrase now that I mentioned to you a few moments ago. Notice the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. Now, the name of Jesus is not a Christian abracadabra. We even get this in sound churches. We think if we don't pray in Jesus' name, amen, that God doesn't hear our prayer. No, it's, it's, it, praying in Jesus' name is praying in the spirit, with the mind, with the character, with the heart of Jesus. It's not a catchphrase that makes everything come true. You can just say amen as long as you pray like Jesus would have prayed. And praying in the name of Jesus does not make, oh, well, no matter what he asked for, I've got to do it because he prayed in the name of Jesus. Praying in the name of Jesus is praying as you understand Jesus would pray and as the Holy Spirit helps you to pray according to the will and the character and the life of Jesus Christ. Now look at what they did. They, they said, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches. Look what's missing. They didn't say, in the name of Jesus, who we believe in. They said in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. These people were not believers. They were filled with the Spirit, but it was an unholy Spirit. And so they, they prayed. They tried to do these signs, but they didn't believe in Jesus. They just saw it as a name to be used. By the way, we have forgotten something in our 21st, late 20th century and 21st century Christianity. Because, and I hate to harp on this, but it, it's just one of those things that I, it's like chasing a rabbit. You just got to chase it until you skin it, you know. Two times, Matthew 12, 39 and Matthew 16, 4, Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation looks for signs. And we have millions and millions of people in the Christian community that are seeking for signs. Oh, where are the signs? Let me see power. Let me see, let me see signs. And Jesus said, a foolish and adulterous, unfaithful generation looks for signs. Why? Because you're not being faithful to just love the Lord whether he gives you one or not. Satan will orchestrate a false manifestation to stop a true work of God. Now, Satan's a spiritual being. He's not on the same level with Jesus. He's not even close. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But Satan 
will orchestrate a false manifestation to stop a true work of God. Is that not what happened when Moses took the rod of God and he went into the presence of Pharaoh and the false prophets, the false teachers of the false religions of Egypt reproduced every one except the last one, and that was the Passover. They can imitate. Satan has power. And he will give a false manifestation to stop a true work. There are still these wolves in sheep clothing. And one of the ones are these Jewish exorcists. By the way, that's an interesting translation. The word means strolling Jews. Just kind of walked around looking for opportunities to make a buck. They were also called, another way to translate that word is vagabonds. Let me give you one more word. That's a good translation of this word. Gypsies. Gypsies. One of the problems that the church in Romania faces in trying to preach the gospel is there's so much demonic and so much satanic from the gypsies in Romania that it's difficult to overcome all the darkness and the oppression that they've been under. They were pretending to have supernatural power and they're pretending to have the ability to perform miracles. And, and so this is kind of a humorous story to me in some ways. It's sad, but it's humorous because this evil spirit, this demonic spirit got agitated and he tore into them. Now at the name of Paul or at the name of Jesus, that spirit would have fled. But in their name, playing with spiritual things, the evil spirit attacked them. Listen, the evil spirit didn't even like them. The evil spirit wouldn't even put up with them. And he went after them. Look, look at what he says. Jesus I know, and that word know is a word of intimate knowledge. Paul I'm acquainted with. I know who he is. But who are you measly mortals trying to do something with me? And he tore into them. God's people have been often manipulated, often fooled. But there's one thing you can't do. You can't fool an evil spirit, and you can't fool the Holy Spirit. And so this evil spirit tears into them. Now, let me give you a long statement, and that's what the lines are on the back, I think. The devil will never surrender. The devil will never surrender to anything that doesn't have real power over him. The devil will never surrender to anything that doesn't have real power over him unless, and that unless is important, the devil will never surrender to anything that has real power over him unless he can appear to do so so that he can further deceive unless he can appear to do so, so that he can further deceive. One of the issues of the day is that people teach we need signs and wonders and miracles to validate the gospel. What that implies is that apart from miracles and signs and wonders, the gospel doesn't have power. Now, when I gave my heart to Jesus, I didn't see a sign and wonder. I came under conviction of my sin and realized that I was in a lost condition. 
God's Spirit convicted me of that sin, and I didn't hear any bells or whistles. No, no lights went off. I, I mean, I just knew I'm in trouble. And apart from God, I'm going to die lost and without Christ. I just knew it. I mean, nobody was slain. Nobody felt. I love what Bill Stafford says. If you're going to get slain in the Spirit, fall the right way. Fall forward on your face toward God, not on your back. But I love these people who get slain in the spirit on TV. When they get slain, they, the ladies always reach down and, and hold their... Man, if the, if the spirit has so overwhelmed you, the last thing you're thinking about is, am I proper? Am I falling the right way? I mean, come on. The psychological manipulation is incredible. I believe that the gospel has power if there are no signs. There are no what we would call wonders in today. I believe that in and of itself, the gospel needs nothing added to it. The whole emphasis of this movement implies that we need some revelation, some experience, some power to validate the presence of the Holy Spirit. What we may be validating is that we're so immature, we need something to give us an experience rather than trusting in the abiding presence of a holy God who lives within us. We need some kind of feeling, some movement. Listen, if you want a feeling, just stand in the tub and stick your finger in a light socket. You'll get a feeling. I promise you, you'll be slain. <laughs> what do we really want? Do we want a true work of God or do we want an imitation work? Because there's true revival and there's imitation revival. There's a true movement of God and there's a movement in the spiritual realm that appears to be a true movement, but it's not really one. And this is part of what's happening in this whole thing. This is nothing more than modern-day Gnostic mysticism and experiential-based Christianity. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. Subjective experiences are never to override objective truth. We are to run our experiences through the grid of objective truth. Christianity is not anti-intellectual. Now, we've talked about this before, but I want to say it again because you never know when new people are coming into the church. Your emotions are the shallowest part of your nature. And God never does his deepest work in the shallowest part of your nature. You see, I really don't care how high you jump on Sunday. I want to know how straight you're walking on Tuesday afternoon. I've got some friends who are in other circles, um, denominations, and they have said to me on occasion, more than one occasion, They've said to me, you know, we, we can get all happy about Jesus at church on Sunday, but then on by Tuesday, some of those same people are in the pastor's office talking about that they've had affairs and that they're stealing or that they're this or that. I, I got a call uh, three weeks ago from a staff member in another state in another denomination. Now, this pastor in this church, this staff member called me because he wanted my advice on something and that's somebody I've known for a while and he called me and said we got some real problems here now let me tell you 
Just why signs and wonders is not the cure-all, okay? This particular church teaches a four-square gospel that healing is part of the atonement. They teach that tongues is a sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit. The pastor teaches that he has a prophetic word. And by the way, they've got $400,000 they can't account for from the pastor in the last two years. Now you tell me how that matches up. To say you believe all this stuff and have people slain out in the spirit in the service and people standing up and jumping up and down and shouting and doing all kinds of crazy things, but then during the week you're sifting off the offering? What's that all about? I tell you folks, all of the stuff that you see going on doesn't deliver people from their carnal, selfish flesh. God's not trying to stir us emotionally. He's trying to change the way we think. Give us a renewed mind and a renewed heart. Any experience must be brought to the bar of Scripture and to be tested there. Scripture always, always outranks and overrules anybody's personal revelation or experience. For if faith cannot be tested, then it can be deceived. Deuteronomy 18.10 says, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell or a medium or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Now, there's an interesting little phrase there. Of course, this is about the occult and, and Satanism and all that, but there's a little, one who calls up the dead. You know, that's somebody who speaks to the dead. But I wonder if, if you can allow me just a little bit of room here. Could that also be somebody who claims they're going to raise somebody from the dead on television? And the year's up and it's still not done. Scripture says that person is a false prophet. You say, oh, what? he seems like a godly person, but he told you something he didn't produce. Now, you either line up with the man or you line up with the word. That's kind of where it all falls. In fact, Isaiah chapter 8 says, When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? First Chronicles ten thirteen. So Saul died for his trespass, which he committed against the Lord, because of the word of the Lord, which he did not keep, and also because he asked counsel of a medium, asking inquiry of it, and did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. There are a lot of similarities between the occult and what's going on in the name of Christianity today. Because it's all deceptive. Doesn't the scripture say that Satan would even try to blind the eyes of the elect, of the believers? 
So there's a third thing. Speaking the truth can empower us. Verse 17, this became known to all. What became known? Well, just what happened to these Jewish exorcists. Both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. Now, the Greek there implies that this was happening over and over. This wasn't just a one-time thing, but they kept coming. They kept confessing. They, they kept disclosing repeatedly their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, you think about 50,000 pieces of silver 2,000 years ago. Man, we could all go to Moe's tonight and get anything we wanted. Satan's kingdom was beginning to crack. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. The strongholds of darkness were being broken down. Now, this is one of the things that happens when God begins to work. These Christians, these, those who have believed, are now coming, and they're confessing things that have been in the darkness. They're bringing things out in the open, these hidden practices, these hidden thoughts. They're bringing them out in the opening, and they're convicted of their hypocrisy, saying that they're believers, but at the same time still trying to keep their hand in the world. And so they begin to bring these books and they burn them. And what happens is this led the pagans to examine their own lives. And they begin to look at their lives. So you see, when revival starts in a church, it spills over to a community. When God begins to work among his people and when the people in the world see the church getting right and the church confessing sin and the church laying aside things that they once did, then it makes the pagans stand up and go, whoa, wait a minute, something's happening here. You know, I've never seen that happen in a church before. I've never seen people get that honest. I've never seen people confess those kind of things. I mean, this is incredible. Something's going on. And they begin to investigate. It's one of the ways that God draws the lost in. And in burning these books, here's what they were doing. They were forsaking their occupations. And we're going to see that in just a moment. So here's a question. The word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Here's the examination question for us tonight. Is the word of the Lord growing mightily and prevailing in you tonight? Now, I wish I had some illustrations here that I had some physical illustrations. Let's say I had a football, okay? Everybody, everybody just imagine I've got a football in my hands. In my hands, it's worth the cost of the football, but in Peyton Manning's hands, it's worth about $140 million. Why? Because in his hands, that football becomes mighty and prevailing because he knows what to do with it. Uh, let's take a basketball. In my, in my hands, now I know you've all seen my slam dunk from upwards, and it's an awesome thing. I can only do it once a year at my age, but... Uh, you know, to do the reverse, check my watch on my way up and to hang from the rim is just, well, I hate to brag, but it really was good. But, uh, you know, in my hands, a basketball is just a basketball. 
But in the hands of Michael Jordan, it becomes something phenomenal. In my hands, a golf club can hit a ball just about anywhere. <laughs> it can go left, it can go right, it can go to the ladies' tee. It can go in the water, it can go in the sand, it rarely goes into the hole. But in the hands of a professional golfer, even an average golf club becomes an incredible tool. Now, do you see what I'm getting at? You see, in the hands of a Tiger Wood, he could go get a golf club from Sears and hit it 300 yards because it's mighty and prevailing in his hands because he is controlling that club. In the hands of a Michael Jordan, a basketball becomes an incredible thing because he really can leap from the free throw line and slam dunk it. In the hands of a Peyton Manning, 60 yards downfield, rolling to his right is not a problem. The name of Jesus on the lips of a person that doesn't believe is worthless. The name of Jesus on the lips of a person filled with the Spirit and obeying the Word and surrendered to Lordship is priceless. Number four, standing for truth can lead to opposition. Verse 23, about that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. Now, let me just summarize this. There was a, this revival. They were cleaning out their magic books, and the silversmiths were being uh, threatened. Their, their economy was going downhill. Their way of life was being destroyed. In fact, these people had made models and images of the goddess Diana, and, and now all of this is kind of going away, and Ephesus is becoming a city in which God is moving, and businesses are being shut down, and, and occupations are being destroyed because God's beginning to work. And so these silversmiths attacked Paul, not because of the book burning, not because of the power of the Spirit. They attacked Paul because their very life was being diminished. And in fact, if things continued to go on this path, Ephesus and its influence on the whole worship of false gods would have been diminished and destroyed. So they engineered a riot. The gospel causes a stir. Always has, always will. I'm going to ask the praise team in the rhythm section to make their way up here as we wrap this up. Ray Stedman said this, and you may want to write this down. This is worth writing down. Ray Stedman says, a Christian is one who is completely fearless, continually cheerful, and constantly in trouble. A Christian is one who is completely fearless, continually cheerful, and constantly in trouble. Now, folks, listen. When Jesus gets his foot in the door, he doesn't leave anything the way he found it. Here was a church... 
And here was a preacher, the Apostle Paul, and a people that God got a hold of in such a way that they caused no small disturbance concerning the gospel. The majority of Albany, Georgia tonight, and Sylvester, and Leesburg, and Dawson, and all the other communities that we touch, they've not given one thought to God today. And yet we have churches on every corner. We've got hundreds of preachers, hundreds of churches of all denominations. But I don't see the churches in our area causing a disturbance in the city to where the city has to deal with us. They ignore us is what they do. They just don't care because we're not causing them any problems. We're just blending into the culture. But when a church has a movement of God like God wants it to have, then it becomes the talk of the community. Things begin to shut down that have prospered in the past. Lives begin to change. God is glorified. The devil's mad. And the spiritual warfare is on. As long as we are comfortable, we will not cause a disturbance in this city. But when we get uncomfortable with the things that we want to hide, and when we get honest before God, and when we allow the Holy Spirit of God to work in our lives and to cleanse us through and through, and in the name of Jesus, we glorify God through our lives, this city, this region, cannot be neutral on who we are and what we're about. Oh, people have opinions about us. Everybody's got an opinion about us. But is their opinion based on rumors or thoughts or ideas? Or has their opinion been formed because there's so much of Christ's likeness and godliness in us that it flies in the face of the way they're living? That's the key. So I want you to stand. The altars are open. They're going to sing Glorify Your Name. It's a new song. But as they sing it, if you need to come to this altar, you come and pray. Staff members will be here. You come right now.